please turn with me to your bulletin insert that has our passage of Scripture printed upon it, found in the book of Genesis, the 32nd chapter. Uh, This is the third sermon in a four-part series on lessons in life in Genesis. And last week we looked at Esau and Jacob. We looked uh, primarily at Esau and, and an unwise decision he made. And today we're continuing... Uh, to look at Esau and Jacob, uh, paying more attention to Jacob this day. We don't have time to read this whole story, but I hope you'll do that uh, sometime uh, today, this story where Jacob is renamed Israel. So let's begin to read verse 1 and read through verse 12. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, This is the camp of God. So he named that place Manam. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, This is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maid servants. Now I'm sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau. And now he is coming to meet you, and four hundred men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray. From the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me, and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper, and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. It was Thomas Wolfe who said, you can't go home again. And yet here in this passage of Scripture, we see Jacob doing just that, going home. Near the end of Wolfe's novel by that same name, he writes, you can't go back home to your family, back home to your childhood, back home to a young man's dreams of glory and fame. You can't go back to places in the country. 
back home to the old forms and systems of things which once seemed everlasting, but which now are changing all of the time. It's easy for us to see that what Wolf was trying to talk about was change in that novel. And to some extent, that's what's going on in his text concerning Jacob. We see the theme of change, and it's not just change in the big picture. It's not just change for the sake of change. But we see change in Jacob's life so that God can transform him. In other words, God is working on Jacob in this story. And hopefully God will work on you and me through the words of this text. I think it will help you and me to see why the change is needed, how God orchestrates it, and what that ultimately means for our relationship with Him in Jesus Christ. Amanda mentioned Psalm 46 with the children. That's one of my favorite psalms precisely because of the way it begins. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear even though the earth should change. You see, even though the earth may be changing all around us, even though there may be important and at times even cataclysmic changes going on in our own lives, there's no need to fear because God is with us. He is that very present help in trouble. And that's what we see in verse 1. With the mention of these angels, you see, that's God's way of saying that He is a very present help to Jacob. Notice that we don't get any specifics about these angels. We're not told if they said anything or not. But we know from the rest of Scripture that whenever we see an angel, God is about to do something very important. And that's certainly the case here in this passage because we have to remember the larger picture. This is the covenantal nation in the person of Jacob and his wives and children, the direct line of Abraham coming back to the promised land. God has told Jacob to return to the land of his fathers, the land of his birth, and God will make sure he has a safe passage. These angels are there for protection, I believe, but not just that. I believe also it's God's shining light as a way to tell Jacob, I'm with you, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. But even though God is with him, notice that Jacob is still afraid. And we can tell this even before we read of his fear in verse 7. We can tell because Jacob is bending over backwards to be really respectful to Esau, his brother. And when has he ever done that in his life? Never. When has he ever had any real regard for anyone else except for himself? This is so out of character and we know that's why he's afraid because this fear is motivating tremendous changes 
in His character and His life. And what we need to notice is that God many times can and does use the fear in our lives as well as the consequences of poor decisions that we've made, decisions like we talked about last week in Esau's life. God uses fear and consequences like that to bring about changes that He wants to see us make in our daily living. In this particular instance, Jacob is dealing with the consequences of of his decisions to manipulate Esau's birthright and blessing from him. I hope you remember that part of the story. My sermon assumes some knowledge on your part of this Jacob story. And you remember how Jacob not only uh, tricks Esau out of his birthright, but tricks his own father so that he receives the eldest son's blessing. And when all of that took place, especially when Jacob got the best blessing from his father, Jacob had to run for his life because Esau let it be known that he was looking to murder him. And so Jacob has spent the last 20 years in another land, in Laban's house, working, marrying, having children, gaining possessions. And now God has told him to go back home and the prospect of facing his brother Esau frightens him to no end. What if Esau is just as angry as ever? What if he still intends to kill me. I can just hear those kinds of thoughts going through Jacob's mind. And this fear does two things. And the first is we see Jacob plan and prepare and scheme like he's never planned and prepared and schemed in his life. We didn't read that part of the story, but he's just as shrewd as ever, hoping to probably both appease his brother with all these gifts of animals that he's sending him. You see, he sends him drove after drove of animals, five different groups, hundreds and hundreds of animals. He's hoping to appease Esau. It's almost like he's giving that birthright back through all these gifts of animals. And then he's also hoping to give himself an advantage because you see the old Jacob is still in there. In other words, if Esau has any military aspirations toward him, I mean Jacob's heard from his servant that he's got 400 men, that can't be Uh, you know, something that comforts you at night when you try and sleep. So all of those animals will slow down Esau and his men. And not only that, but he and the whole countryside will know where they are with all of that noise and all of that dust and all of that commotion. You know, I think you and I are a lot like Jacob, if some fear is taking over our lives, just like him, we busy ourselves and plan and research and scheme and do whatever we can do to feel like we at least have some measure of control in the situation. But is that really what God is after? 
when He allows some circumstance to happen in our lives that causes us fear? I don't think so. God doesn't want us depending on ourselves. He doesn't want us planning and scheming and and trying to figure out how we can still be in control. He wants us to depend on Him. When God is working on you in your life, this is one of the things He's after, not to make you independent, but dependent upon Him. And just as an aside, you parents of small children that are here in the congregation today. You know, that's one of your jobs as a parent. As your children grow up to make them independent of you. You know, you have to give them discipline and responsibilities and so forth so that as they grow up and as they become an adult, they're ready to step out and go out on their own. But at the same time as you're teaching them to be independent of you, you're to be teaching them and nurturing them to be dependent upon God. And we don't always get that across the way that we should so that when we have children and young people growing up, then God has to work on us to make sure that we learn to be dependent on Him. Jacob has a wonderful plan here. Yet he still feels very vulnerable to an attack from Esau, and this is precisely where God wants him having this great need with no other option whatsoever other than to rely and depend on God. It's interesting in the story that Jacob worries and worries, even though if you've read the whole story lately, you know there's no need for him to worry. God's already handled it. Esau has forgiveness in his heart. Esau has missed his brother. He's looking forward to this reunion. And there Jacob is, worried all about it. And how often do we do the same thing? When God already has it handled, we don't know everything that's happening and we worry and worry and all that worrying for nothing. But you see, the past torments Jacob because of the decisions he made. The sins he committed against his brother as a younger man, sins that have gone unconfessed for at least 20 years. So in the midst of all of this fear and lack of control, we see Jacob do something that he hardly ever does. He prays to God. He even repents, claiming at one point that he's not worthy Well, no truer word was ever spoken. He throws himself on God's mercy with this prayer that we see at the end of our passage in verses 9 through 12 and basically says that all that he is and all he will be is because of God's power at work in his life. Now, it's interesting to me what some commentators say about this prayer. Some don't see it as much of a prayer at all. But think about it. If you've been used to relying on yourself all your life, you're not going to know much about prayer, are you? At least Jacob makes the effort and is moving in the right direction. And notice how he uses God's words unto him. He's basing the petition 
in his prayer on God's promise. Some people see that as as Jacob throwing God's words back in his face. But that's not it at all. Jacob might have relied on himself most of his life, but he was brought up well at home. He was taught about the God of Abraham and all that he did for his grandfather. He was taught about the God of Isaac and and the faithful way in which he treated Isaac all of his life by repeating the words of God's promise. He's expecting God to live up to his own character. He's expecting God to be God. How often do you and I pray that way? I think we can learn from Jacob's example here. We too can pray God's word and his promises to us. The psalmist does as much in Psalm 119, verse 58, where he says, I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. Now we don't know what promise the psalmist was talking about, but he's praying according to God's promise. Jacob is doing the same thing here. We know what God's promise is in this passage. You can never go wrong praying God's word because when you do that, you're praying His will. Proverbs 30 verse 5 teaches us that every word of God proves true. Every single word proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. What an illuminating verse out of the book of Proverbs for this story in Jacob's life because God indeed was His shield. That's Proverbs 30 verse 5. This prayer is so telling because we can see that Jacob is at his wit's end. He has no other recourse, and this is exactly where God wants him, for Jacob to become dependent on him. You see, God wants Jacob to return to the promised land. He's told him to do so, but there's baggage he cannot take. He cannot go back into the promised land in the way that he is, the person that he is, because there's been this terrible character issue about Jacob from day one. We even see it in the name that he's given at his birth. Jacob, the one who supplants. John Walton, who teaches Old Testament at Wheaton, he puts it this way in his commentary. The character flaw to be resolved goes deeper than the inclination toward deception and manipulation. They are but symptoms of the more pervasive problem of self-sufficiency. Now think about the people you know. We've all met people like Jacob. They don't need anybody or anything. They never take any help. No, I can handle it. I can do it. They simply go through life with the attitude that they can handle anything that comes along. And this type of lifestyle or belief or characteristic or whatever you want to call it is totally counterproductive to the life of faith. I've even read where some Christians are referred to as self-sufficient Christians. That is an oxymoron. There's no such thing, it seems to me, 
as a self-sufficient Christian because Christian people, by definition, are dependent upon the grace of God for all that they are and all that they hope to be. And yet we see people that act like self-sufficient Christians. Sometimes we're some of those people, aren't we? We're usually those who have grown up in the church. And because we've been around the faith so long, it becomes more or less routine in our lives. We take it for granted. And as we mature, we learn to be self-reliant. And maybe in life we have some measure of success which simply serves to reinforce this self-sufficiency. And even though our faith is real, we depend on ourselves about as much as we depend on God. Now, don't misunderstand me. When we're like this, you know, we believe in God. We've trusted in Jesus as our Savior. We can quote Scripture. We admit that God has blessed us in our lives. But we don't always live in reliance upon Him. And the reason is our lives are going too well. And then when something comes along like we see happen here in Jacob's life, it jerks us awake spiritually speaking and all of a sudden we see that this fear throws us on our knees before God. Do you know what God wants from you? He wants you to depend on Him. He wants you to believe in Him and trust in Him and His Word. He wants commitment from you. You know, like Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He wants obedience. You remember Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. God wants all of our lives. He doesn't want the part only where we need Him. He wants all of us, all of the time. So many of us struggle today just like Jacob. We need to yield up this self-sufficiency and this independence for which Americans are so known. Otherwise, as Walton puts it, we only accept Christ and Christianity as a benefit to be enjoyed rather than as a commitment to be lived out. Preachers that you hear on the radio, they would say it in these terms. We want salvation without the cross. And then in his commentary, Walton gives a great illustration on how to think about this by mentioning a wedding. I want you to think back to the last wedding you were at. Hopefully, I'm talking about a Christian wedding now, where the congregations gathered in a sanctuary like this and the bride and the groom are down front and they vow to give themselves to each other before God and those gathered there. And depending upon the wording, they say either I will or I do. 
But what if they do all of that, go through that entire ceremony, walk up the aisle at the end, and then go their separate ways? They'll still be legally married, but you and I both know that's not what marriage is all about. You may be aware that when C.S. Lewis married Joy Grisham later in his life, it was nothing more than a mere legality in the beginning. She had found out that she was going to be deported from England. And they were acquaintances and, you know, C.S. Lewis thought, well, she could stay in England if she marries somebody, and so they got married. It was just a legal contract. But when she became terminally ill several months later, he found out that he could not continue to treat their marriage as just a legal contract. He found himself wanting to care for her, and his feelings for her grew as did hers for him. And as her death grew closer, they repeated their marriage vows one day, not as a legal entity but as a man and a woman who loved one another and wanted to commit that love till death should part them. Now what you and I need to determine today is whether our relationship with God is simply a legality or is it a relationship based upon love. And I'm talking our love for Him. We know that God loves us. We know that God loves us so much He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus says as much, Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says that to His own disciples right before He's going to yield Himself on the cross. You are my friends if you do what I command you. He obviously loves us, but do we love Him? Are we committed to Him? Is our love for Him growing? Or do we only use God whenever we need Him? In this story before us today, we see God working on Jacob. He wants a relationship of love. He wants to see Jacob say goodbye to his self-sufficiency to his old ways of life and become the kind of man he needs to be to lead this covenantal nation. And that's why in the rest of the story, so to speak, as Paul Harvey used to say, you know, when Jacob wrestles all night with an angel or with God or however you want to put it, he ends up a humbled man. He comes out of that wrestling match with a limp. It's Scripture's way of saying that the change has taken place and not only do we see it in the limp that he's a humbled man, that he's no longer self-sufficient, but we see it in the name change. He goes from Jacob, the one who supplants, to Israel. God rules. It's an interesting name, isn't it? For one who all of his life had depended upon himself, God rules. Who rules in your life? On whom do you rely? It's an important question to ask. Even more important to answer. Amen. Amen.
Let's pray together.